shows are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Welcome to the Adventures in Tech Podcast. Talking the latest tips and trends in educational technology to innovate and engage your students. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Dan. Hello, everybody. Once again, welcome to the Adventures in Tech Podcast. My name is Andrew. And I'm Dan. And we are up to episode number seven. Super excited you're joining this journey with us. And as we always mention, if you like the content, please help us out by providing feedback and a rating on the platform that you are using to listen, whether it be Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast. We greatly, greatly appreciate your support. We are uh, the final countdown, Dan, the final countdown to Nice Skate 2021. Yes, it's coming this weekend. I'm very excited. Yeah, Nice Skate Better Together 2021 conference held in Rochester. We are going to be there with a whole group of people. We're going to be broadcasting live. We're going to discuss the different sessions, workshops, keynotes, uh, the corporate council, the exhibit hall. There'll be special guests. So we're very excited about that. And uh, that'll be kicking off on Saturday. And we will be up there broadcasting to keep you guys in the loop. The other thing that we wanted to mention, which Dan uh, in the last episode kind of ragged on me saying, what are we going to talk about after all this? <laughs> but the Ditch Summit, Matt Miller, Ditch Summit, December 13th, 2021 to January 7th. It's year number six for the Ditch That Textbook Digital Summit. It's a free online conference for educators. There'll be more than 75 video presentations on a wide range of topics that we know you'll absolutely love to help you engage your students. If you need to register, make sure you go to ditchsummit.com. Matt Miller, a friend of the podcast. So before we get to the weekly wind-up, and we do have some special guests, and we're excited about them being here today with us. Uh, Dan, what's going on with Classrooms? Classrooms, still continuing on what we were talking about last week, um, working with the fourth graders, working with the tenth graders, um, doing a little gamification, and designing experiences. So we, we often talk about you know, doing projects or kids doing a project. Well, we, we framed it a little differently. Um, we're really trying to push them to create an experience because an experience is something that the user can immerse themselves. They can touch it. They can feel it. They can be part of it. They can interact with it. So it's so much more than just, you know, copying and pasting information onto a slide deck. They're really um, getting their creative juices flowing and creating some fantastic experiences for, for their users. Awesome. Awesome. The other thing we are doing is we're working with the green screen using the technology. So uh, kind of tying into the research curriculum and nonfiction second grade in a building with uh, balloons over Broadway with the literacy component. And the kids are actually designing their own Thanksgiving Day Parade balloons. We're going to be filming it. It's an entire grade level. It's going to be a great school community-wide event. Uh, you know, the second graders are going to parade in front of the kindergartners, and then they're going to have their own uh, parade that they're going to get to view back on. So a lot of good things going on in the classrooms. Yeah, we do also have something coming up pretty soon with math and multiplication and arrays, and right. the students are going to use some robotics. So we're going to use those Sphero golf balls finally. That's right. And the students are going to design miniature golf course holes based on arrays. Yeah, on arrays, and, and we are doing that as a fourth grade topic, and we also have a second grade where they're using standard and non-standard units of measurement. So a lot of fun projects going on uh, across the district. So weekly windup, Dan, what's happening? Well, we have some updates to Google. Um, one thing that I think will come in very handy because we've had some confusion with this when we met with people. Yeah. But now um, when you're making calendar invites, you can indicate whether you'll join a meeting virtually or in person. So that's built right into Gmail now. Um, 
yeah, so that that's good. So we can see who's going to be there, and everyone is clear on the expectation. Oh, this is virtual or this is in person. And there are those times and those occurrences where you may not be able to get in person, so then you just hop on virtually. It'll give you a quick, easy way to notify everybody who's attending the meeting how you will be there. So the rapid release domains, the gradual rollout, 15 days for feature visibility as normal. That started November 15th. Schedule release, gradual rollout will be up to 15 days for feature visibility starting on November 29th. What else we got going on? Well, another update to my, you know, favorite, one of my favorite Google tools is Google Sites. So yeah, I love, love sites. I love having that platform like those old wikis for students to collaborate and create and put together multimedia. Um, we also use it a lot for our virtual events. And yep. now in Google Sites, you have the ability to a, copy a single page or a subset of pages into a new site. So rather than having to copy the entire site over, any pages that you want to use, you can put into a new site. That's great for teachers if you're creating templates for your students um, to work in Google Sites, whether it be for portfolios or for some of their experiences, you can now create that much easier. You know, the nice thing about using Google Sites, and you talked about the templates, often there are times where we're like, we wish we had a template of a website for the students to kind of use so they don't go off and have their sandbox time and kind of mess around too much on formatting the Google Sites. So this now, this gives the teacher the access to kind of craft where they want them to go with their Google Site. Lastly, is more of an admin thing. Uh, what, the transformation reports that are available in Google. What's cool is we did check this out. If you have access to super admin, you can really see exactly how the people in your domain are utilizing the Google Workspace features, whether it be Classroom, Google Meet, Docs, you know, how often they're accessing it, how many people are using it on a weekly basis. Transformation reports are usually done about every six weeks. So check with your admin if you're interested in seeing what's going on with the transformation reports. And in our windup, I just want to go, uh, throw it back to July because a lot of us weren't paying attention in July. But Google Slides made an update in July where you can create your themes, which you always could, but you can put image placeholders in um, for in your theme. So students don't have to worry about where the images are going and moving them around and reframe them or mask them into a certain shape. Right. You can put in image placeholders. The students can just right-click, replace image, and put it right into the placeholder. So when you're designing stuff for students to interact, whether it's drag and drop, showing your work, or, or whatever you're doing in slides, um, building the image placeholders, I think, is a fantastic thing. That is great because we always talk about how can we lock these images so they can't really play with them too much. So mm -hmm. the image placeholder is definitely uh, something that we're very uh, intrigued by and make sure you're trying it out in slides, themes, and layouts. And that is available to all Google Workspace customers now, as well as G Suite Basic and business customers. Okay, so we are up. We've been talking about PBL a couple uh, episodes ago, and we said we're going to have our PBL gurus here. They're here. They are here. They are back. They, yeah. So we want to introduce uh, two of our good friends and colleagues, John Salmon and Tara Kohler. Round of applause for joining us here. God, look at her face. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Thank you for having us. No, no see, now he, John said Dandrew. So here's the thing. A little background knowledge on that. Tara and John have coined that phrase because Dan and Andrew are always together, obviously, as co-hosts of the podcast. So then one day, Tara was trying to say our name so quick, and she kind of just regurgitated Dandrew instead of Dan and Andrew. So that's where Dandrew come from. But anyway, so the reason why we have Tara and John here 
They are professional development specialists in our district, uh, mostly in the STEAM, so science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. And they are a big driving force of utilizing PBL in, in the classrooms across our district. So do you guys want to give a little introduction about yourselves, what's going on, what you're thinking about with PBL, your training, your background? Tell, tell us about that. Sure. sure. All right. So obviously I'm Tara. I, uh, no, I thought you were John. You know, the voice <laughs> gave it away. 20 years in the district, 17 years in the classroom. Uh, this is my third year as a professional development specialist with this wonderful team. Uh, prior to coming into this role, though, I was a teacher who was um, starting to implement project-based learning um, with the support of um, Dan, Andrew, and John in my own classroom. And so uh, we were fortunate enough to have the district send us to multiple trainings with uh, PBL Works virtually, um, where John and I furthered our understanding to be able to better implement it in the district. So yeah, so there's Tara. So I'm John, <laughs> as you can tell. Um, so I was in the city of Poughkeepsie for a number of years, and now I'm over here at Wappingers for a handful of years as a STEAM uh, PBL. We call a professional development specialist. I think of it more of as a coach or really a critical thinking friend. Um, so we push PBL a lot in classrooms because science naturally lends its hand, its hand to it. So we like to go there and we like to deliver PBL. PBL works as a driving force behind a lot of the work that we do. And we'll talk about it with some of the misconceptions that we'll address. But we'll address PBL works and their design elements and some teaching practices as we move forward. Awesome. So one thing I did want to mention is, you know, we are very fortunate that John and Tara are joining us today. And again, as they mentioned, they're part of our team. We have a fantastic team. And they will be attending NICEGATE as well. So we'll be getting some perspective from their lens to see what they think of the conference. They are excited to be presenting two different sessions. We'll ensure that we uh, put it in the show notes what sessions John and Tara will be. If, whether it be in person or virtually, you will have the option then to check out the sessions that uh, John and Tara are uh, presenting on. And Dan and I haven't even talked about ours, but we'll link them in the show notes as well. So let's talk PBL, Dan. Misconceptions of PBL. Right. I mean, we think of all those acronyms in education and acronyms get thrown around. Like you get an acronym and you get an acronym and you get an acronym. <laughs> and PBL is one of those things. And, you know, so if we talk about project-based learning, you know, in your experience, what are the major misconceptions of PBL? So um, project-based learning, like Dan, you talked about building experiences for um, <clears throat> children in the classroom. And really what it is, it's not something extra that comes at the end. It's actually the best practices are just organically embedded into the project-based learning experience. And so it starts with milestones that go throughout the experience. So these are little artifacts or learning experiences that will feed into a final public product. Um, and it's not just the product. It's not just a project that comes at the very end of the unit. Pieces of it um, are experienced throughout. So I love that you said PBL as the acronym. I think that those three letters scare the heck out of a lot of people in education. Sure does. Because of what yep. Tara just said is that they think it's something in addition to, right? So how do we address those? Is that what we're looking at, right? Yeah. So, Dan, your, your front-end work that you were just talking about, if teachers designing learning experiences, <laughs> everything about project-based learning is really that. It's the front-end planning. It's the preparation of a learning experience rather than a road experience where I'm just going to stand and talk. So... Um, when you front-end plan, a lot of the work that Tara and I do, we work with design elements specific. It used to be Buck Institute for Education, but now it's PBL Works. Um, and we use their design elements. There's seven of them. We use seven of the teaching practices. And so when you work through what those items are, 
Um, I have them listed here because, again, my brain gets all fogged up and I forget them. But when we're looking at it, we really start with a driving question or a problem that we're trying to address. Um, that is the crux of everything. It drives the learning as we're moving forward. Um, it's not just the dessert at the end, as Tara had stated. We have sustained inquiry, authenticity, voice and choice, reflection, critique and revision, public product. So when we think of any of those specific items, those are just relevant to best practice and everything that we do in education. Um, PBL Works is just put them together in such a framework that we know we walk through this in a systemic way. Um, we also have teaching practices where we design and plan, we align our work to standards, we build the culture in the class, we manage activities, scaffold student learning, assess student learning needs, and then engage and coach kids. So really, if you take any of those items that I just said, they're just relevant to best practice in education. It's not right. a new acronym. Mm -hmm. It's not a new initiative. It's just good teaching and learning. And that's what it comes down to. I think that's almost the driving question is what is good teaching and learning and what does it look like? And like Dan said, I think that the acronyms, people get scared or they shy away from things because they don't know what they don't know. So how do we do a better job of educating colleagues and educators across the country, across the state, across the world in the sense of how you can make PBL into your classroom without it seeming like just another thing? And how do you uh, kind of have it as a daily, not daily, but as a unit thing to, to ensure it's a driving force behind the teaching, good teaching in your classroom? It's interesting. There's a big, there's a big push in research that one of the misconceptions comes from leadership. And so having leadership understand what PBL is then starts to offer up freedoms for educators to explore it and work with it. So it's, it, you know, it's just a different dynamic on how you're going to approach Need that trickle-down effect. And we've been really fortunate that our upper administration has supported our work and training in this. Um, you know, we're lucky for that. We're lucky that the buildings we go into, principals are open-minded enough to let us um, try different things with their teachers and give them the autonomy and freedom to create these learning experiences for their students. Absolutely. We talked about some misconceptions mm -hmm. of PBL and questions that come to mind. So what does project-based learning mean to you guys? You're in the classroom, boots on the ground. You're developing these, these PBL projects with students, with teachers. What comes to mind? Like, what does it mean to you in that regard? I think there's so many... Tara and I were talking about this, and I think there's so many different directions you can go with it, but we were trying to think of what would just be short and sweet that really gets to it. Um, I think it's authentic and engaged learning for kids. It's just the crux of it, authentic and engaged learning for students. In addition to that, it's a learning experience that promotes life skills. So at the end of the day, yes, we want our children to learn, you know, their reading, writing, math, social studies, science, all that content. But when we think about the world that we're going to be sending these children off into when they become adults and what that um, job force is going to look like, when we create these experiences for them, um, really embedding in some life skills that go beyond the content is what PBL means to me. It's amazing that Tara touches on the life skills part. <clears throat> when we think about, there's a lot of research that's coming out of the pandemic, right, from different instructional models that are functional for kids. And there's a lot of white papers that are coming out to find learning as one place, PBL works as another, showing the highlights to project-based learning and student outcomes. They're far surpassing their peers for teachers who are actually employing these and I think it's because it's real. It's life skills that kids are getting. So, you know, I think about everything you just said, and it seems like there's, it's going to bring so much energy into the classroom because you're engaging on multiple levels. The students are actively involved in the, the creation and the construction of knowledge. 
Um, but I think, you know, as teachers are listening to this, you know, what are the ways that you bring authenticity to PBL? So as we discussed um, earlier, um, public products bring authenticity, um, but also bringing in guest experts in the field um, could become part of that learning experience. And so when we talk about that public product, um, the public product means the project goes beyond the four walls of the classroom. So, um, and that's how you get it to that authentic place in the real world is, um, you know, just the learning experience being grounded in that. When we think of that public product, um, that's the whole point of what we're working to. When we create that public product, we're thinking about what's meaningful to the community and the kids in which we're working with. That by design starts at an authentic place for the students. And so when we're looking at authenticity, it's directly connected to the student, the, you know, the learner, and then obviously the greater community, as Tara was saying, trying to bring it beyond the four walls of the classroom to the greater community. Okay, so for our audience that doesn't understand getting that outside of the box, greater than the four walls of the classroom. We talk about bringing the authenticity into PBL. Can you elaborate and give us like some examples of projects that sure. you've worked on? Absolutely. Because yep. I think our audience wants to know, well, that's great. Yeah, I'm understanding kind of what it is, but I need examples, concrete stuff. And we know you guys have done so many things with the authenticity part and just in general, uh, having PBL be a driving force in the way you're working and coaching. So explain a little bit more for, for the audience so they can know. Right, so in during the pandemic, we did a second and fourth grade project um, where students were basically memorializing life during a pandemic. Um, we were fortunate enough to have several guests come in for the students to interview. They went through a process of um, the question formulation technique where they went through um, the most viable questions to ask these guests. We had Senator Sue Serino. We had Dr. Darren Garb from Caramount as one of our guest speakers. We had the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, who else did we have, John? There was one more. Oh, we had... Um, we had the superintendent of schools superintendent for Wabingers schools. at the time as well. Yep, and we also had a medical tech from Albany Medical. And then from there, that project didn't just live and breathe right in that classroom. The project went public, it got tweeted out, it was shared um, you know, with the world on Twitter. And from there, we actually had people contacting us. Um, ISTE actually approached us to um, present at their conference last year. We had students as guests being part of um, the ISTE presentation. And so these students went through a really unique time. Students lost family members. They were able to all memorialize this through um, virtual journaling and it just made the experience really um, authentic for them. So the best part, when Tara was talking about those guests, the whole point of asking the guests the questions that we were asking was perspective. When COVID first start, perspective was a, each one of us, whether it be the business community, the education community, the, um, the various families that we were working with, everyone had a different perspective on what was going on and we were very nervous. And so we brought in various professionals to represent those different perspectives to help students understand a more holistic view of what was happening during the pandemic. And so then they got to share their experiences, as Tara said, at a greater place beyond the classroom. I do think that trying to get educators to understand mm -hmm. PBL and to actually adopt it as part of their classroom routine, how do you drive them to go up? Oh. You know, you have the certain, the early adopters are gonna be like, I'm all in, sign me up. But then how do you have the other people to have that passion to adopt it because it's what's best for students? Right, and I, I just wanna build upon that for a second is what you're describing is absolutely amazing and the experiences, but you know, someone that's not familiar with, with this environment 
you've just scared the heck out of them. Absolutely. You've, <laughs> Absolutely. You, like, and honestly, I'm familiar with it, and you've scared the heck out of me. So, you know, there's a lot that's going on. And I, how do you, as Andrew said, how do you start building capacity of teachers to, to be willing to, to step out of their comfort zone for a bit and enter the world of PBL where they can still feel safe? We, um, we often use a, a, an approach where we call it the dimmer switch. Right, it's not an all or nothing approach. You gotta just take some of the pieces, take some of the elements, take some of the practices, and start to incorporate voice and choice in what you're doing. Start to incorporate more authentic learning. Um, so if you take that dimmer switch where it's not an all or nothing approach, they gradually start to build into it a little bit better. Um, a lot of the practices they're probably employing, and it's just saying, okay, how would we refine this and, and tweak it and make it more of a gold standard version of PBL? And so when John talks about those teaching practices, that's the design and plan, aligning to standards. You're already, when you plan your lessons, you're already doing that. So when we talk about it's not something extra, it truly isn't. It's just being super purposeful about your planning. And like John says with the dimmer switch, you think about the beginning of the year. So our PD team did um, a whole superintendent's conference day on you know, building a culture of independence in your classroom. Just by building a culture of independence, you're already a fraction of the way there to implementing PBL. And then you take little bits and pieces of these design elements or teaching practices and slowly um, release your students. You wouldn't do a full-blown project maybe in September, first marking sure. period, but mm -hmm. think about it gradually released across the school year that maybe by the fourth marking period, you're in a full-blown PBL, where at the beginning of the year, you're just dabbling with building a culture and voice and choice. And you could also be taking, as Tara was saying, you know, varied versions of it. It could be a PBL that runs multi-content, or it could be a PBL that just lives in one content area, um, just where it just lives in science, where it's just living in social studies, where we're taking these baby steps along the way. So I think, you know, as we've gone through everything with the pandemic and the teaching and the way, way things have been changing in, in education, um, PBL really builds upon a lot of different things that everybody's trying to accomplish in the classroom. Um, but what I wanted to, to ask you is, it's, it's still going to be a major mindset change, not just for teachers, but for a lot of students. Younger yeah, students are definitely more adaptable. I mean, their divergent thinking is through the roof. So right. I think they'll be able to rise to the occasion. But you talk about those middle schoolers and those high schoolers, and especially coming off of a year and a half just sitting in front of a computer screen, you know, it's going to be a mindset shift for them. What are things that a teacher can do to start? You said that dimmer switch. What are, what are some practices that you can, teachers can start doing um, in order to change the mindset and develop that, help students develop their inquiry and their independence? I, th I think bringing in choice into anything is a great starting place. I think that's one of the easiest ones to do. Sometimes kids don't even know what to do with choice because they're so used to not being given the opportunity for choice. So um, just even as simple as in a math workshop where you're giving them choice in how they're going to spend their independent work time rather than saying you're going to do this assignment, this assignment, and this assignment. Um, or if you're doing an investigation, right, rather than telling them exactly what they're going to be, their investigation question is, letting them come up with what they're going to investigate. Let them dabble and play with what um, tools or resources or materials they would have to do it, and then let each group come up with their own procedures. Um, I think that's just a slow way to start, at least in the math and science realm. I think voice and choice is a great place, and 
by design, you're going to naturally tag into authenticity when you do that. So you're going to be tagging two of those design elements. The minute you bring in that voice and choice where they start to dictate a little bit on where this is going, the authenticity level starts to go up as well. And so a teacher, I think, when they're thinking about whatever the content is that they're going to deliver, they start to frame it as how does this look in the real world? What is this really going to be in the real world? Well, the students are starting to give that to you through their voice and choice. And then you're framing, as you said, Dan, and I love the turn of phrase, we start to design the learning experiences in such a way. We're not thinking about how do I stand and just tell information, but how do I actually right. design mm -hmm. learning experiences for kids? And I think we start there, those two basic places, you're going to be hitting home run right off the yeah. bat. And then bringing in the sustain and gray part, when you think about um, an assignment, a unit, a topic, um, you know, we, years and years ago, you know, we do KWLs and some classes, the KWL still living there, um, but shifting into like need to know questions. So if this is what our learning objective is, having students coming up with what are the need to know questions for us to be able to successfully complete this objective or question. And then there's a constant revisit at those little milestones throughout your unit of, okay, have we answered some of these questions? If we have, great. Okay, do we have more questions? And that's where you bring in that sustained inquiry, allowing opportunity for students to constantly revise the questions they have about the learning experience to keep propelling their um, knowledge forward. But it's all grounded, as you said, and I'm going to keep coming back to what Dan was saying, right, Tara, if you agree, it's designing a learning experience. And so the experience needs to have that authenticity. But then in order to have a need-to-know question, you got to have it framed in some type of work that they're going to do that is a product, right? Mm -hmm. right? So it's really very simple. The strategy Tara was talking about is probably the quickest and easiest way to promote sustained inquiry is just constantly revisiting, okay, what do you need to know now? What do you need to know now? And students will just keep feeding you what they need to know. It's actually, the students are remarkable drivers of this. So it's a lot of creating instead of consuming. And my question now is you're saying all these questions, they have all these questions, they develop these questions. What then ends up becoming the driving question yeah. in PBL. Like what, how do you determine and narrow down what's the driving question and the importance of it in the PBL process? We were, we were talking, it's, it's probably the most important part. Yep. I mean, when you think about it, they've drafted properly. Um, students are going to be working towards creating something to that throughout the entire unit. So really the driving question is framed in such a way that it is the product, right? The question is asking, how can we do something for someone? Or how can I create this to do this? How might we, if we're thinking in design thinking terms, right? Mm -hmm. um, but how might we do this or how might we create this? And so then every step of the way, the pieces of knowledge that they're gaining are helping them to better create what it is they need to do at the end. And PBL Works has a really great tool that we've used in um, our in service last year, it's a two-brick, which takes you through the process of writing that really good driving question. And then from that driving question, the kids come up with their need-to-knows. And like John said, that driving question is the everything. So last year, um, we had a driving question in fifth grade, how can we turn a landscape into native habitat that supports biodiversity? So when we think about where that project went, um, the entire fifth grade did it, and, and how did it go beyond the four walls of the classroom? The PTA hopped on board, and these fifth graders became part of redesigning the gardens 
um, that, you know, promoted biodiversity. So it wasn't just the students' um, models of what um, their landscape was for a native habitat, but it actually is living and breathing there today. There's another one for fourth grade where there were fourth graders were saying, how might we um, lower our, or reduce our carbon footprint? And so reducing the carbon footprint, specifically, um, there was a student afterwards, this was shared at um, a summary that we had, or not a summary, we had the showcase at the end of the year. And one of the students was like, I'm so excited, my family started changing their behaviors, do you think I'd be able to change the behaviors of others in my community? And I said, I think, powerful. Absolutely, yeah, I think yeah. you absolutely have an opportunity for that. So that's the kind of thinking that goes into this type of work. So I want to thank you for elaborating on that because you're making me feel comfortable with, with this process a little more because you're touching on things that I'm already comfortable with. Um, the one thing that, that and, and you mentioned it, John, uh, the, the whole idea of design thinking. Right. Right. So for those people that are not familiar with design thinking, I think there's some great resources out there, but really what it is is a tool that you can employ with your students that gives them a structure in order to start building empathy, to start evaluating real scenarios and prototyping solutions and going back and testing and retesting. I think um, a few resources, and we can put some in the show note, but I think the Stanford School of Design One of my has a great design thinking mm. format, and so does A.J. Giuliani, who we bring up a lot yeah, in the podcast. Yeah, we love A.J. Yep. He has his... Um, he has his, I forget what the acronym is. It's his is. notebook or something. Right. Yeah. And um, so design thinking. And then when Tara's mentioned, you know, the driving question and what students need to know and students need to do, that they're self-generating it. But that makes me think of just curriculum and understanding by design, enduring understandings, essential questions, what you need to know, what you should know. So all that makes me feel comfortable. And now I can say if I, I can work in that environment and then start helping my students take that ownership and explore those things on their own. And so you mentioned, um, you know, design thinking in, in last year. So design thinking, as we know, directly links with creating those PBL experiences. Um, we had fourth graders go through the design thinking process to create um, catapults. It was connected to um, our energy unit in fourth grade, where basically, um, do you remember the driving question for that one? It was... Um, how, off might, the top of my head. how might we create um, uh, like a device to basically save um, save Earth from asteroids? And then it was connected to our manufacturing class at Roy C. Ketchum. And so our fourth graders went through this prototyping experience on paper pencil. They went through it in a maker's challenge with popsicle sticks and um, rubber bands, and then our high schoolers actually fabricated um, catapults there, which were tested as well. So, um, you know. That's great. That's the authenticity part. Right. Yeah. It does. And it doesn't have to live in the upper grades. I mean, we've done similar work with second grade students where they were working with properties of matter. And so they were thinking about the different properties of matter, simple, you know, something smooth, something's rough, something's flexible, something's not. So they created multi-sensory playgrounds through design thinking. And then again, high school tech students manufactured a prototype of that for the students. Just seeing that from where they started with their designs to seeing, and it's more concrete for them. Absolutely. And that's the heart, for second graders specifically, they can see the end product. Wow, this is what I created. So then there's the rewarding part of the experience. And even kindergartners. I mean, last year we did it. I mean, you know, kindergartners did a design thinking challenge with pushes, pulls, and collisions where they had to create a prototype of a pinball machine for indoor recess. And then our high schoolers actually fabricated a tabletop 
um, pinball machine that's living and breathing right now. So, you know, as I look at this, it, it's just, um, it, it really gets me excited. Um, I, I love talking about this stuff. And, you know, what really just struck me is at the end, the students are showing and demonstrating their understanding in very unique ways. So going back to that UBD, Understanding by Design, it's, it's an authentic performance assessment for students to demonstrate their understanding. So, it's so funny, one of the things we were saying at the beginning was, they're using the skills at the application level, right? Right, consistently because yes. they're using the skills to build something or to, or to work through something. I think that's a big fear of educators. They're like, okay, so you're having me do all this projects and this and that, but in the back of their head, they're like, well, how am I assessing mm -hmm. them? And they they can't see it if it's not a formal test or something. So when you think of PBL, what does assessment look like in that regard? It's not just paper and pencil. And I think educators trying to get past that is a challenge. So PBL is no different than any other practice. We have formative and summative assessments that are embedded within the work that we're doing. We just hit certain pause points, right? So if we're building to a certain end, design thinking, I'm creating something for someone. Those milestones that Tara had discussed, those milestones can be artifacts that could be a formative and or a summative assessment. It could be represented in a multitude of ways. Maybe they were writing a paper or maybe they were creating something in a slide deck or Maybe it was an audio piece that they were doing. A lot of different ways that these milestones can manifest. And so when we think about assessments, it's both formative and summative. We're, we're using it to guide our learning. And then, of course, we're using it at endpoints where we're moving on to new stuff. And I think goal setting and progress monitoring is embedded within the project, which is helpful with assessment as well. I think that's huge because the challenge and the way you just laid it out will hopefully get rid of the fears of educators wanting to take on PBL because they're always thinking, oh, I got to test. There's this proficiency scale and there's this, and I got to make sure I get this score. And if you say, well, no, it's the same thing you're always doing. And a lot of them, it's just tweaking how you're teaching. That's going to be huge as they try to, you know, dip their toe in the waters of PBL. Absolutely. Okay. So I think we're going to have to split this episode because we have a lot more to talk about with John and Tara and really PBL. It's a big topic it's kind of at the forefront of education now. It's a buzzword, like we like to say, as Dan was mentioning, the acronyms. And I think we're going to have to have a part two uh, regarding PBL, and we'll hopefully have John and Tara back, right? Sure, we'd yeah, love we'll to. Back. We would Thank you. All right, awesome. So uh, that being said, we will be filling you in uh, from the NiceGate 2021 conference. Uh, we thank you all for your support listening on all the platforms, leaving us a review. We greatly appreciate that. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please reach out. Tech hard, work smart, live an adventure. Till next time. Find Andrew on all socials at A Nicola Tech and Dan at WCSD Tech DR.